This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. I am here for our next session of The Learning Curve. I'm here with Cara. Welcome, Cara, from, I'm assuming, Boston, or are you still in Michigan? No, no, no. I'm in Boston. I'm okay. here. I'm, I'm here. Happy to be back in New England because being back in New England means my kids are in school, at least for, you know, I don't know, a couple more weeks. But glad, glad that you are, as always, in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. We haven't been going too many places lately, have we? Still. We have not. I've been in Charlottesville, and you've been, I think, to two places since then. But, you know, it's nice to do what you do, and, and well-deserved, I should say. And I also mentioned Boston because my first story is from Education Next, and it's by uh, Elizabeth uh, Setrin. And it's called A Charter School Boost for Special Ed Students and English Learners. And she does a great job of comparing how well charter schools are doing with English language learners and students with special needs who we know across the board have challenges. Many of our mainstream students do not. Uh, our public schools in Boston are doing well as, uh, uh, also. But in some instances, there are some challenges with both places. But she's identified some pretty good uh, you know, wins for those students, particularly those who are black, uh, those subsidized uh, lunch. So just another story to show, A, that we can't forget about special needs students and English language learners at this time. B, at a time when people say that charter schools do not educate these students, we know that's not true. But we've at least got now some empirical data to show that at least in your city of Boston, uh, they are making a difference and we should learn from it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if Boston's good for one thing, it's like producing great charter schools and then making people hate them. So, but, <laughs> but Elizabeth Cetron, she she does really great work, really thoughtful work, and she's and I always appreciate it. I think this is probably she's had a few studies out over the years, but she has just like no one else. Number one, been able to really home in on. Um, you know, asking the right questions. So our charter schools pushing kids out, our charter schools not serving uh, students with special educational needs or English language learners at the same rates as the district. And she looks at it really objectively <laughs> and, um, you know, not surprising that she has found that, in fact, they're they're not pushing kids out. They're serving they're serving um, populations of kids in question even better than, as you rightly point out, um, the Boston public schools, which have room to grow, but have certainly improved um, leaps and bounds in the in the past couple decades. Um, but it, the other thing I really always appreciate about her work, Gerard, is that at some point she's able to explain some pretty sophisticated analyses for people like me. I mean, I won't include you in that because I know that you have like a psychometrician's brain, right, Gerard? But yeah, but, right. but I can understand. <laughs> I can understand what she writes. So it's great stuff. Thank you for highlighting it. And this week, I am bringing us an article out of Kansas, which is a state I don't think we've talked about too much on the learning curve before. It comes from the, the Topeka Capital Journal, so the cjonline.com. And the title is Education Commissioner, colon, Kansas schools must find a better solution for remainder of school year. Here's here's the thing. I, I really enjoy this because I don't know the education commissioner of Kansas. His name is Randy Watson, but sounds like he's a straight shooter. <laughs> and, and I really appreciated this. And basically, he's been looking at what's going on in his schools. It sounds like most schools in Kansas are doing remote learning. Those that did choose to go face-to-face -face or live, face-to-face, um, -face, mask-to-mask learning, um, or maybe not, um, 
Um, we're mostly in rural areas and with cases of COVID on the rise, they are pulling back and going either remote or hybrid. But what he's saying is that all three of these models that are happening in Kansas right now, none of them are working and that the state needs to think through an entire reset. Now, this article doesn't give answers as to what as to what that reset looks like, but it does highlight some of the some of the reasons why he's saying that we that things aren't working. And I think these are all things that we haven't been talking enough about, George. So I just want to highlight three of them. He says, first of all, when it comes to trying to go back in person, it's a facilities issue, not not the ventilation thing, et cetera. We can open windows, but that quite frankly, there just isn't enough distance for kids to spread out and to be safe. He then points to um, the fact that there's a lack of staff. So if you have to have smaller to keep kids in smaller cohorts, you need more teachers, lack of staff, which also strains finances, financial resources when you need to hire more teachers, et cetera. So all three of these things, I think we should be talking more about. And hopefully there'll be lessons learned going forward for infrastructure. Is this, you know, is this pandemic going to cause us to fundamentally rethink school design in the future? It might. Um, and, and, you know, Kansas is lucky enough, they say, to have a rainy day fund for its schools. So they're able to dip into that to deal with some of these finance problems to get more staff, both uh, remote staff and others to come in. But not every um, community, not every state is going to have that luxury. The one other thing I wanted to say is that he also says, there is a political problem in Kansas, and that is that too many people aren't wearing masks even when kids are in school face-to-face, -face, which is causing COVID cases to rise, and that nobody wants to give up extracurricular activities, especially football, which is also causing COVID cases to rise. So I'm not laughing because it's funny, because it's certainly not funny, but appreciation for this commissioner, just telling them like it is and being really frank, and I think there's a lot we could all learn from that. So glad that we gave Kansas some love. Um, I had a chance to travel to Kansas for the first time last year uh, to speak at a Kansas Public Policy Institute event uh, at the request of its president, James Franco, and had a chance to participate in a few community meetings and meet with lawmakers. And that state is uh, trying to move the needle uh, in the right way. So, so glad to hear about uh, Kansas. Absolutely. Okay, well, coming up, we're going to speak to somebody that I bet you a lot of our listeners know. And if you don't know him, I think you're going to love to listen to him. We're going to be talking to Professor Paul Peterson, and he is of the Harvard um, Program on Education Policy and Governance, um, Education Next, Hoover Institute, among many, many other things. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about all things uh, virtual learning, pandemic-related, charter schools, you name it, right after this. And Learning Curve listeners, we're happy to have with us today Professor Paul E. Peterson, the Henry Lee Shattuck Professor of Government and Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the senior editor of Education Next, a journal of opinion and research. He has evaluated the effectiveness of school vouchers and other education reform initiatives. He's the author or editor of numerous books, including Saving Schools, which document the forces that undermine the effectiveness of a once dynamic educational system. In his recent book with Eric Hanushek and Ludger Rosman, Endangering Prosperity, a Global View of the American School, documents the large economic costs of a stagnant K-12 education system. 
Dr. Peterson serves as a member of the Hoover's Education Success Initiative, or HESI, focusing on the improvement of education policy and providing public education solutions for state and education policy leaders. And any of us who have been in the education policy world for any amount of time certainly know Professor Peterson and his work. Professor Peterson, thanks for being with us today on The Learning Curve. Well, thank you, Carl, for that nice introduction. Uh, well, we're happy to have you. So, I want to I want to dive right in to um, to talking about something that you wrote a long time ago that has proven to be um, quite prescient. So, in your 2010 book, Saving Schools from Horace Mann to Virtual Learning, I mean, virtual learning back in 2010. It, it, it didn't seem like a thing that we would be doing full-time most of the country. Um, but you identified the Florida Virtual School um, founder, Julie Young, as among the most influential K-12 education figures of our era. Now, we've been very lucky to have Julie Young on this show, and certainly her expertise has proven quite important in this time. Um, with so many kids now experiencing digital learning, can you tell us a little bit about your observations, um, both then and now with this unprecedented moment we're having with COVID-19 and K-12 education policy? Well, you know, back then uh, there was a prediction out there by Clay Christensen that said within 10 years, uh, we would be teaching half of our courses online in in, in America's high schools. And, uh, and of course, uh, he was made fun of. Uh, he and Michael Horn wrote that book together. They were made fun of. Uh, but actually, it's turning out to be an underestimate for Here 2020. We are. Uh, so, but I think, you know, we have to be, uh, it, it's not necessarily a cause for celebration. I think what we have discovered is that we didn't use the decade to really uh, build the capacity to teach online. I think we have discovered that you can't just sort of go online overnight and have a effective uh, educational system. The, too many of the uh, of the online materials uh, are uh, just um, you know you material that's been record, recorded and kids watch and. There's not enough uh, follow-up and interaction with a real teacher, and and we've also learned that probably as we go online, if the blended learning model is going to be the model that will be the more effective one, because people really do feel a need for an interpersonal connection uh, in a learning environment. Uh, I think as the older the child. Uh, the more likely you can go strictly online. I'm teaching college students and graduate students right now. I think it's going a little better with the graduate students who have enough background, uh, but it's not easy. It's certainly not easy to teach online. It's uh, very demanding. And I just whether or not that can match the classroom instruction is uh, I think a bit more up in the air than I uh, said in my uh, wild-eyed enthusiasm back in 2010. 
Well, and I'm sure in 2010, neither you nor Michael Horn nor um, Clay Christensen could have imagined that the pivot to online learning would be so wholesale and so and so quick and so hard. Um, so it's but but you're right. It's absolutely it's a difficult experience for teachers and it's a difficult experience for students. And now we can throw into the mix parents because I guess that's probably one thing that you couldn't have predicted in in your book that so many parents would in fact be. Uh, monitoring online learning as we are today. Um, I want to switch to another question though, Professor Peterson, this one, um, because we do talk a lot about COVID in this moment, and this one is a little bit more um, in the wheelhouse of of charter schools. It's actually, it's fully in the wheelhouse of charter schools and sort of takes me back to, um, to where we should be. So in early September, you co-authored a really great Wall Street Journal op-ed um, looking at NAEP data, so National Assessment of Educational Progress from 20, 2005 to 2017. And that data show that African-American and lower income students in charter public schools outpaced their peers in traditional district schools. Now, many of us who've studied the charter sector know that that for a long time, there are certain pockets um, of, of charters in certain places that have been really high performing and, and really good at serving, especially these populations of students. But this seems to be broader and, and have even broader implications. Could you tell us a little bit more about this research and, and what it tells us about the current policy debates surrounding charter schools? Well, you know, it's been very difficult to get a nationwide evaluation of just how effective the charter school sector is. Uh, Almost all the studies of charter schools uh, either focus on a particular state or a particular city or some schools within a city. Uh, So really generalizing to the country as a whole and how charters are doing nationwide has been very difficult. But it turns out that within the National Assessment of Education uh, Progress, the uh, nation's report card that the U.S. Department of Education has administered every other year, uh, it turns out that if you take a good look at that data, there is information on how charters are doing relative to how district schools are doing. Uh, and there's 4 million observations there that can be uh, looked at. So there's an enormous amount of information on student performance in math and reading, all on the same test. Uh, it's a sample. It's not the unit. Every kid is not saying, but it's a representative sample nationwide or close to one, as close as we can get. And uh, it's... Um, it's quite informative. Now, it doesn't tell you exactly the answer to the question, are, are charter schools better than district schools? Uh, but it can tell you whether charter schools are getting better at a faster rate than district schools. And that's the question that we asked. How much improvement is taking place over the 12-year period between 2005 and 2017? Are charter schools making a, a faster uh, rate of improvement than the schools in the district sector? And we find, yes, indeed, we do see that nationwide. And we do see it uh, even more so if you talk about African-American students. They are showing the biggest jumps forward and also the students from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds. So as a as a tool for meeting the uh, equal opportunity gap that exists in our society, charters seem to be becoming uh, 
increasingly effective. Yeah, and I'll note too that you had um, a study out earlier, early late spring, early summer, looking at what had happened um, during the pandemic after schools closed down. And I believe in that study, polls it was a poll, and polls showed that um, that African American parents of charter school students reported higher rates of satisfaction with what charters had done during the pandemic as well. Is that correct? Well, yes, we we show that that's true across the board for all parents. Um, the, um, the one of the we asked a series of questions in that poll of parents uh, nationwide, and the the questions were, uh, how much contact are you having with the teacher now that the schools are closed? Uh, of course, it's online contact, and how much uh, uh, of a learning loss do you feel your child is suffering? And how satisfied are you with the experience? And in response to all of these questions, the parents of children in charter schools uh, and private schools were were much more favorable than those in the district schools. Now, in terms of breaking it out by ethnic group or income group, uh, we didn't have a large enough sample in that study, so I can't say specifically for African-Americans. I have to say that more generally for across the board. We're hoping to mount a similar study this fall, and then we're going to have a larger sample, and we should be able to address the specific question you asked about African-American students. Well, we'll be we'll be looking forward to that. I have, I have one more question in this vein, and that is, with all of this um, data that you have on, on the progress that charter schools are making in comparison to districts and parent satisfaction, et cetera, we're still living in a time, even under what many thought I think would be a rather an administration at the federal level that's very uh, sympathetic to charter schools. We're, we're living in a time when we're seeing hostility toward charter schools, um, continued hostility in many states, and what some characterize as hostility at the federal level in terms of um, funding for charter schools or, you know, or how many ch- or charter school caps, et cetera. Um, I'm curious as to how you think advocates should really be leveraging these data and talking about this going forward so that there are more more charter school options for families where um, where they're wanted and needed. Well, you know, I think the irony is, is that the opposition is the greatest where the charter schools are improving at the fastest rate. Uh, in the in the Northeast, we see uh, the charter schools really uh, moving forward at uh, a much faster pace than the district schools, but in the West, they're moving, both both sectors are moving forward uh, fairly well. I mean, it's, it's you, if you look at only the Western part of the United States, uh, district schools are making uh, substantial progress and charter schools are too, but no more than the district schools. And so, uh, but then the opposition to charter schools is particularly intense uh, in in the east, in the northeast, because uh, I, I, that's where you know New York and Massachusetts and New Jersey and all up and down the east coast. There's a tremendous uh, effort by school districts and teacher unions alike to prevent the charter schools from expanding. Absolutely, Dr. Peterson Gerard. Glad to have you join us. 
I want to follow up on uh, another question about your Wall Street Journal article, which was really good. There's been significant debate among charter school advocates and policymakers alike about the need to have stringent guardrails for charters in their growth. What are some of those guardrails and what do you think research and data can tell us about the efficacy of regulating or possibly over-regulating charter schools? Well, I know this is a popular concept uh, among some people that somehow charter schools need to be told to concentrate on the disadvantaged students. And therefore, uh, unless we uh, put uh, a bunch of regulations on them, uh, they won't do that. And I guess that would be a concern of mine if there were any evidence that that was the case. But uh, in, according to our data, the the, the the guardrails are already in place, so to speak, because the gains that uh, are being shown out there are particularly great, both for African-Americans and for the most disadvantaged. So I, I, it would seem to me that those who are concerned about that particular problem, the equal opportunity gap in America, should be giving charter schools the nod and saying, go for it. I mean, you're already proving that you're you're on the right track. So now that doesn't mean that there aren't some charter schools in some places that are uh, abusing their authority. I'm sure you can find examples, just as you can find examples of that in the district sector. But I think you have to, as a matter of policy, look at what's the overall picture. No, good point. You know, you've dedicated a great deal of your academic um, career to preparing the next generation of scholars, as well as students who may decide not to become scholars, but to work in the field of education. You've focused a lot on school-driven models in the K sector education, charter schools being one. What are your thought about some of the recent movements, uh, whether it's micro schools or uh, pandemic pods? What do you think about those in relation to charters? And from your historical understanding of, of decentralization politics, is this the latest continuation of a model that started decades ago, or are we seeing something radically different? Well, it's, it's, it's a good question, uh, Gerard. I, 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 I tried to think up through the answer to that question. I think it's a little too early to tell. Okay. I do know this, that the affluent segment of our society is going to make sure their children are as well protected from the vicissitudes out there as possible. They are, if, if schools are going to close, if their kids can't learn online, they're going to look around for uh, resources that can help them, whether it's a tutor or whether it's a neighbor or whether it's just uh, spending a lot more time with their children themselves. And affluent people have the resources, they have the cultural resources and the material resources to assemble the tools needed to educate their children. Now, they may not do quite as well as they would if schools were uh, operating on a normal basis, but I don't expect uh, a huge drop off. But the significant problem that the COVID crisis is creating is for the those families who don't have those same cultural and material resources at their hands. 
And uh, this is the unfolding tragedy that we may be observing, that for all of the talk of creating more opportunity and greater equality, we may be moving exactly in the opposite direction. Theoretically, there's every reason to believe that, and there's enough hints out there in the data that that's actually happening, that we should be mobilizing our resources uh, nationwide to address this. And I can't tell you uh, how disturbing I find it that uh, schools are being closed and kept closed uh, because of a concern about the coronavirus. It's, of course, uh, a problem that uh, should not be taken lightly, but we know that children are not uh, likely to get this virus uh, or, or get sick from this virus, and they're not likely to spread it. So we are actually subjecting children to more serious constraints and restraints than we are adults who are much more likely to be infected and suffer uh, a, a serious illness from this infection. So I, I think we've got our policies pretty much upside down. When you mentioned families, particularly affluent families and what they're going to do for their children, uh, what came to mind is, is a conversation I once had with someone you know from Brookings, uh, Isabel Sawhill. And she's written a great deal about the, the parenting gap and what families with certain capital, social, cultural, and otherwise can do for their kids. Something that we're often uh, often missing from our conversation. So I'm glad you talked about the family piece. Thank you. Well, yeah, no, the family is, of course, the greatest engine of economic growth that we have. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Without families, uh, you can't have a, a society. You can't have a pro prosperous society. And uh, I know there's talk out there that families are overvalued, but I, I don't think uh, that, that sells very far because uh, we all know in our own personal lives just how important our families are to us and how important our children are to us. Uh, so I just think that, uh, you know, people are just built that way. We are built to care uh, for our own children. And so the more we can strengthen families, uh, the better. So I actually think these pods that are being created uh, should be celebrated, but I think we should try to find uh, ways of making sure that those those uh, educational tools are made available as broadly and equitably as possible. Well, and I think, um, suffice it to say, you find um, at least this audience of two here uh, <laughs> on the phone with you in, in great agreement with that. Um, we, we will take away from this the fact that absolutely families are front and center when it comes to education. And we, we love discussion of policies and ideas that can really um, help to further that and uh, and put families uh, in power, especially those who who can't, for example, afford a pod. Um, very very eager to see policies that empower those families um, introduced and go forward. Professor Peterson, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It is always a pleasure, and we we always learn so much from you. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon on the learning curve. Well, uh, congratulations on your podcast. I think it's a great. Uh, contribution to the conversation out there. So uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Talk again soon. Bye-bye.
My tweet of the week is related to a report uh, produced by Stanford University's Center for Research on Education Options, better known as CRADO. And they're talking about learning loss uh, among students in 19 states. Uh, Dr. Margaret Raymond, who is uh, back, uh, been a part of our show, said that in the absence of any actual assessments, uh, these results serve as a scientifically grounded estimate of what would happen to students since March. And they're estimating that by spring 2020, there's a range of 57 to 183 days of learning lost in reading and 136 to 232 days of learning loss in math. And that is a challenge, but always glad to see some great research coming out of Credo. And now that I think about it, um, Eric Hanushek, who's also at Stanford, recently published a report that we discussed on the show about learning loss internationally. So there's a lot of learning loss literature coming out of Stanford. Yeah, and I tell you what, it's important because if we can't quantify it, if we can't understand it, it's that much harder to fix it, right? Yep. So, all right, Gerard, next week, we are going to be talking with Cheryl Brown Henderson. She is president of the Brown Foundation for Educational Equity, Excellence, and Research. And her father, the Reverend Oliver L. Brown, was a lead plaintiff in Brown v. Board of Education. And listener, I want to let you know that Gerard is here just making fun of me while we are recording this podcast via Skype. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to go away know that the great Mr. Robinson is also, he likes to clown around during the learning curve. Gerard, yeah. it's all a thanks part of for the fun. Yes. <laughs> I'm not even going to turn my camera. You have a great week. I'm going right. to go pick those kids up from school and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you next week.